For Pacifica Radio, September 28th, 2023, I'm Scott Horton. This is Anti-War Radio. All right, y'all, welcome to the show. It is Anti-War Radio. I'm your host, Scott Horton. I am editorial director of Antiwar.com. And I'm the author of Enough Already, Time to End the War on Terrorism. You can find my full interview archive, almost 6,000 of them now, going back to 2003 at scotthorton.org and at youtube.com slash scotthortonshow. And you can follow me on Twitter, if you dare, at scotthortonshow. All right, introducing once again the great Matt Taibbi. He is at Racket.News, and he and his guys do some great work over there. I'll tell you what, welcome back to the show, Matt. How are you, sir? Great. How's it going, Scott? Thanks for having me on. Thanks for the kind words. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I'm doing good and happy to have you here. And so a few different things to talk about. But first, let's start with, I guess, sort of kind of the basis of all of this censorship in the first place. I know you've told the story. It really kind of started as uh, trying to deprogram people who had signed up for Obama's caliphate in Syria. And then but their second job basically was controlling the narrative on Russiagate. And you have this great new piece at Racket.News about how the very core, the very basis of the Russiagate hoax, just like all of the rest of it. Uh, But this is the one that's the least criticized and I think still the most accepted of the Russiagate era is the Russian hacking of the DNC and their responsibility for the leaks to WikiLeaks at all, and whether there's any evidence of that at all. And you have found more reason now to cast doubt on that than ever before. Please do tell. Yeah, uh, I mean, I, sh- I should cop right at the start to the fact that this is really not a story that I, I spent a lot of time on. In fact, I was kind of intimidated by the Russian interference story and probably to some degree even fell for some of the propaganda about the the sort of unassailability of that narrative. But there was a group of uh, researchers online who spent a lot of time filing freedom of information requests, open, record, open records requests, who have found a number of really interesting things over the years. And the most recent of these revelations has finally convinced me that it's time to start looking at the whole question of what actually happened with the hack, because if you remember, there was that crazy episode involving an accusation that Donald Trump was communicating secretly with Russia through a server at the uh, Alpha Bank in Russia. Mm-hmm. And we subsequently found out that this was a kind of a concocted media hoax that uh, was ginned up, among other things, by some researchers at Georgia Tech. Now, people who were chasing that story filed open records requests. And as a consequence of that, we've now found out that those same researchers did work on the attribution of the DNC hack. So people who are responsible for kind of a known media hoax also did for uh, the Department of Justice through DARPA at the Pentagon work on uh, the attribution for the for the hack. And there's just a lot of stuff that's weird about that, but that that, that right away is a huge red flag for me. I'm not sure about you, but... Uh, yeah, absolutely. That, uh, mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Now, Matt, the average radio listener probably remembers about, I don't know, a third of the 10,000 Russiagate lies that they were told here. But 
it seems like, as far as I understand, the heart of the plot, it all comes back to the Clinton campaign hired this law firm, and then that law firm hired this, that, and the other group to put out the kind of core accusations at at the heart of the Russiagate plot, and everything else was sort of embellished from there. Is that essentially right? Yeah. Uh, I mean, the Perkins Coey law firm, they were responsible for engaging Fusion GPS, which is like an oppo research firm, who in turn hired the former British spy Christopher Steele, who produced the infamous Steele dossier. These same people shopped a lot of the conclusions of the dossier to both officials in the government and to the media. They also shopped this alpha server story, which came out uh, before the election. And so it's one of a handful of, of uh, clearly fake stories that came out before the 2016 election. And the significance of this new thing is that the same researchers who were involved in the Yodafone thing, the uh, Alpha server story, they're now also tied to the much more serious question of whether Russians are responsible for hacking the DNC and the DCCC. Right. And so now to go back to 2016, people can check the archives. I interviewed this computer security expert named Jeffrey Carr, and it was, I'm almost certain it was April Glaspie Day, July 25th of 2016. And Jeffrey Carr said, I can tell you this. I can tell you that no one can examine a server and tell you with certainty who hacked it because it's too easy to leave fake fingerprints behind and you won't be able to tell the difference. And I can tell you another thing, which is there's one organization on the planet that can tell you with 100% certainty who did it. And that's the National Security Agency, because they have a godlike omniscient view of every packet on every fiber optic cable on this planet. They can rewind the whole Internet if they want to and watch whatever happened and who did what. And so then remember the reality winner leak to The Intercept that they put out, the NSA would only vouch for these conclusions with the yellow line, moderate intelligence. In other words, the right. CIA and the FBI are claiming this. We're staying out of it. We're not contradicting yeah. you, but this is not coming from them. And they would have been the ones who can tell you like a light switch or on or off. This is either true or it's false, period. And But again, Jeffrey Carr said, no one in the world else could tell you. And remember what CrowdStrike said. Oh, there were all these Cyrillic letters in there. And they had references to Iron Felix from the yeah. old NKVD. Felix, so it Felix must be Felix Edmundovich. Yeah. yeah. They, he left, they left his name uh, there. That seems a little odd. A little convenient, funny, but uh, but yeah, and, and for a lot of us at the time, we not many of us are experts in com in computer security, but we were told by authoritative figures that this is how it happened, and you know it was definitely true that material was leaking out that WikiLeaks was putting out there. It it appeared to you know not have been published without any without their permission. It didn't mm -hmm. it didn't seem to come from a source, although they didn't say it didn't. Um, so, you know, why not believe it? But that, you know, that, that's, that's at the root of this assumption that we've been making for seven years, which is that Russia did this. And, and how did we come to that conclusion? Well, we, we never really got a good answer to that question. Well, look in the Mueller report, he didn't even pretend to have a chain of custody there at all. 
He just right. goes, well, I don't know. I mean, it seems like that's where they must have got it. And by the way, I interviewed Craig Murray, the former Russian ambassador to Uzbekistan, who's a friend of Julian Assange's. And he told me that the source for the DNC leak and for the Podesta emails was different and that he knew who both of them were and that he had met with one of them in Washington. And he said that this person has no conceivable relationship with Russia whatsoever. It had nothing to do with that. And he heavily implied that the leaker of the Podesta emails was at NSA. And it was the the regime itself, the institutional regime itself, or one faction of it, taking revenge against Hillary Clinton for all of her leaks and all of her lousy computer security that they would go to prison for if they did what she did. And so they were the ones who had fished Podesta. Now, I'm not saying that's certain, but I'm saying, hey, the fact that Craig Murray says so means there's more reason to believe that than there is to believe that Russia had anything to do with this at all, which has never been demonstrated or even indicated in any way other than in claims by liars. Yeah, and, and we forget that it took uh, quite a long time. There was testimony that came out years later um, you know, from Sean Henry, uh, who was the president of CrowdStrike, to the effect that, you know, that they had no ev- direct evidence of exfiltration. <laughs> um, that they only had indications of that, uh, which was a very surprising piece of te- testimony. So th- there's a lot of things about this that are very strange. Um, there's also the the very very weak language that was used in the you know in the initial government conclusion that uh, this was done by Russia. They just said it was consistent with sort of Russian methods. Mm-hmm. Uh, they didn't say they had any evidence of that. And so, yeah, and now and now we find out basically because of the response by DARPA, which is the um, Defense, Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, which, you know, once upon a time was like a, a liberal bugbear, which, you know, cooked up crazy fantasies like total information awareness, which are now reality. But they answered a, a letter from uh, Iowa Senator Chuck Grassley that was sent out last spring. And in the answer uh, to Grassley, they had language in there that said that these Georgia Tech researchers, and I'm going to quote this directly, the enclosed August 7th, 2016 document titled Fancy Bear slash APT28 Attribution Analysis may correspond to the, quote, white paper on DNC attack attribution referenced in a previous letter. So they're talking about the work of these uh, DARPA subcontracted researchers at Georgia Tech, and they're saying that they did, in August of 2016, attribution analysis on the supposed um, intruder into the DNC. And these are the same people, again, who were involved in a you know, a pretty egregious fake news scam. So that makes you wonder. I mean, it makes me wonder for sure. Mm-hmm. And I had never touched this this, this, this side of it. I, I, I always thought collusion was the worst lie. And it was the more obvious issue that, mm-hmm. that where reporters could easily penetrate, you know, the, the messaging issues. Mm-hmm. But, you know, maybe this, this is something that has to be examined too. Well, look, I mean, the, the fact that the Clinton campaign through their law firm were the ones that hired CrowdStrike is all you need to know. That it couldn't possibly be right. And, you know, you mentioned how the fact that these guys from the Georgia Tech team were the same ones behind the Alpha servers hoax, which really cast their credibility into doubt. Well, remember CrowdStrike, right after they had come out with this stuff in the summer of 16, they had also accused 
the Russians of hacking the Ukrainians' cell phone apps that they were using to try to target Russian artillery with counterstrikes. And then the entire computer security community on the planet or in Western Europe and America said, that's not true. You're so wrong. And that's completely fake. And you could see the agenda behind it. That they were yeah, trying to clean that there, at the time. There were retractions, if I remember correctly, yeah, on that one. That's yeah, right. They climbed down from that. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Yep. So, you know, the more you look at this stuff, the, the Russia Gate is such an odd story because it's primarily a media story. Most of what happened in Russia Gate had to do with stuff that came out in the media. It, it, it was there were stories that were designed to influence the way Americans thought about a variety of things from, you know, Donald Trump's relationship to to Russia, to whether or not the election was fair, you know, to his criminal you know, potential criminal culpability and having a back channel to, you know, election fixing. But these were all news stories. And it, a lot of the sleuthing that had to be done was really just retracing the sourcing of a lot of these stories, which initially was hard to do because so much, so many of these things were sourced to sort of unnamed intelligence sources. Now we're finding out, you know, years after the fact, what a lot of this stuff was based on, and you know, it's vapor. You know, it's either it's either vapor or it's just highly malodorous. Yeah, it's the same thing yeah. they did to Saddam Hussein, right? It's a it's a hundred accusations, all of them are false, and a hundred times zero is still zero. But if you right. like to believe in it, then you can believe in it. And it is the classic conspiracy theory, only they always say a right-wing conspiracy theory or a left-wing conspiracy theory. This is the mainstream centrist conspiracy theory that they promoted to try to, I mean, and really it's outrageous. No matter what anyone thinks of Donald Trump, and I mean, Lord knows what people think of the guy, you can't just frame the president for treason. <laughs> no, and, and 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 election fraud and espionage. I mean, these are you know some of those offenses are are you know gr gravely serious accusations. They're the kind of things you, you you certainly can't do lightly. The thing that didn't scan for me at the beginning of this is I was willing to believe all kinds of things about Donald Trump. I mean, if you if you want to tell me that he uh, inflated the value of, of his properties and scammed uh, you know the people who you know, were customers of his or scammed people at Trump University and, and broke laws there. I, you know, I, I wasn't going to be like that. That's impossible. Or, you know, he, he laundered money for for various people by, you know, allowing them to to buy overpriced properties here and there or whatever. I mean, those things are, are uh, they're at least in the realm of possibility. This idea that there's a secret back channel to Vladimir Putin, who's going to fix the election in favor of Donald Trump by, let me get this straight, selectively putting out Facebook ads, like a tiny handful of them in, in, a, in a few states, you know, after getting poll information from Paul Manafort, it doesn't make any sense. The, the basic theory of the case never made any sense. Why not just give the guy some money in a bag so you can buy more ads um, in whatever states he needed. It, like, it was just stupid. And the, the stupidity of it just kept coming more Baroque and more ridiculous as time went on. And no, nobody seemed interested in unwinding it, which, which, which also made it suspicious. Yeah. Hey guys, Scott here for Leo Hamill Fine Jewelers out of San Diego at JewelryStoreSD.com. They do business nationwide. They sell jewelry and watches. 
specializing in engagement rings. You know, in case you're in love with somebody. They also specialize in one-of-a-kind vintage and antique jewelry, fully serviced pre-owned fine watches, such as Rolex, Patek, Philippe, Cartier, and any high-end brand. Leos also services high-end watches faster and cheaper than going to a factory service center. Leos takes all the stress out of shopping for jewelry and engagement rings, and always at the right price. They deal nationwide over the phone at 619-299-1500. That's Leo Hamill Fine Jewelers out of San Diego. Go to JewelryStoreSD.com to check out their fine selection and to find out more. Hey y'all, you should sign up for my Substack. It's ScottHortonShow.Substack.com. And if you do that, you'll get the interviews a day before everybody else. But not only that, they'll be free of commercials. How do you like that? Pretty good, huh? ScottHortonShow.Substack.com Hey, y'all, LibertasBella.com is where you get Scott Horton Show and Libertarian Institute shirts, sweatshirts, mugs, and stickers and things, including the great Top Lobsters designs as well. See, that way it says on your shirt why you're so smart. LibertasBella. From the same great folks who bring you ammo.com for all your ammunition needs, too. That's libertasbella.com. Well, and it is a tragedy the way, and this is, hey, you're the man. Matt Taibbi wrote the book, first of all, Insane Clown President. We know what you think of the guy. But secondly, Hey, Inc., which a major part of that, or I guess a, a chapter, but also sort of a theme throughout, is all these silos of information where people don't get to hear the, oppo- the opposing point of view. So when... The Mueller report came out and said, well, we don't really have anything about all that stuff that we told you. People didn't really, you know, on the left side, mostly didn't really have to deal with that because they just weren't confronted with it. And by the way, for people listening who don't know this, I mean, Taibbi, of course, is or maybe you don't know, Taibbi has long been known as at least left of center. And then that goes the same for some of the greatest journalists on the Russiagate story, starting with um, Robert Perry at Consortium News. And, and, and of course, Aaron Maté and Greenwald and Michael Tracy and all the way down. These None of these people were invested in Donald Trump. All of them just saw the fraud where it was obvious that this is crazy trying to frame this guy for treason with the Kremlin and all of this stuff. Yeah, there's a problem when, when in media, when there becomes pressure to endorse conclusions that don't make sense to you. Um, I think we have a healthy media environment when, when journalists are suspicious of each other and aren't afraid to say so in print. This was the opposite situation. It was a new phenomenon in media where suddenly, if you, ca- if you came out and said, yeah, I don't know, that doesn't really make sense you would lose friends like there there would be trolls that would come out of nowhere on social media you would you would lose speaking opportunities you like you might even lose your job and that was new i mean that was something that kids started with russiagate now it's institutionalized but i think i think this story started it mm-hmm. yeah i remember someone on uh twitter casting real doubt I, I forgot what the new fact was that came out but casting real doubt on the p-tape story and a prominent liberal journalist said, counterpoint, don't take this away from me. <laughs> hey, yeah. Well, you know, sorry, pal, but like, come on, it wasn't true. That's all, you know, I don't know. You make up whatever you want if you want. But- right. Yeah. I mean, it's not like I, I, I can understand wanting to believe it. Um, but, you know, and Steve, you could see the, the joy on Stephen Colbert's face. He, he actually rented that hotel room and there was a video of him jumping up and down on the bed and everything. Um, but 
you know, if it's not true, it's not true. And, and you know, it's, it's not me saying that. This is the Inspector General Michael Horowitz who looked at this. It's like, there's nothing there to this story. This story is, is just not sourced. It's not real. Yeah. So, um, you right. know, and, and, why, and why not admit it at this point? I, I, that's, that's what I don't get. Yeah, seriously. Um, well, I mean, we're in the middle of a proxy war with Russia right now. I mean, right. We can't go muddying up that narrative. Now, um, all right, it's anti-war radio. I'm talking with Matt and Taibbi like I like to do. And we're talking about, well, Russiagate. And then here's the segue to our next subject here. When Elon Musk bought Twitter, he brought Matt and a few other uh, colleagues on board to go digging through the Twitter files to figure out who, what was behind the censorship regime. And boy, did they find a censorship regime far beyond what was going on at Twitter. It's an entire censorship industrial complex, including you can read a piece that they did where it's just the top 50 NGOs involved with getting your opinion kicked off the Internet. It's just incredible what they found there. Anybody told you that there's nothing there? They're in on it. You better look out for them. Look at Racket.News and... The good news of it, as we've covered on the show, is there's been some progress in the courts, too, because there is a First Amendment still. And that's one of them that they like to still pretend is the law some of the time. You know, I don't know. So there's progress and setbacks in the courts. It's all very complicated. But uh, you have news for us there. The Supreme Court will rule on censorship. And you seem to be mostly striking an optimistic note here, Matt Taibbi. Please do explain. Yeah, so this is a, this is a case that predated the Twitter files. It's from the state attorneys general of Missouri and Louisiana. Oh, and that was and, before they even brought you guys in on the Twitter files at all. Yeah, so this case, okay. this case had there was already a complaint in this case before the Twitter files started. Okay, and um, there were a number of plaintiffs. The key plaintiffs in the case were a trio of very respected academics. There is Jay Bhattacharya from Stanford. There's Harvard's Martin Kaldorf. And then there's Aaron Cariotti, who is a, uh, at the, in the University of California system and actually did COVID policy for the state. They were all suppressed in various ways. Kaldorf actually became one of the most censored people in the world in 2020 and 21. Really, not even not for factual reasons, but because he disagreed with lockdown policy. And this is something we didn't figure out for a while until after we started work looking at the Twitter files, is that in addition to zapping things for being, you know, quote unquote, misinformation or disinformation or being not true, there was a whole separate category of information that they called malinformation, which is just stuff that's true, but it's narratively inconvenient. Um, and they may dial that down, right, or just deamplify it, or they may actually fully remove it or take somebody's account away. And so the, these three doctors who weren't wrong, in fact, in retrospect, they were right about everything. They, they were right about mortality rates. They were, they were right about the efficacy of vaccines. They were right about, you know, the damage that would be done by lockdowns. They were censored and became the plaintiffs in this suit, Missouri v. Biden, as the Twitter files progressed and they started to get more evidence of what was going on, they added more and more defendants that they were accusing of censorship. And then there was a huge event in July 4th of this summer when the judge in the case 
was looking at the evidence, not only from the Twitter files, but from the discovery in the case, and was so horrified by what he saw that he issued an emergency injunction, basically barring every agency in the government from contacting Facebook, Google, Twitter, and a whole legion of other companies. And this would have effectively ended any kind of censorship program that is now on hold, but it's now going before the Supreme Court and there's going to be a decision, hopefully, at the Supreme Court level over whether that injunction will stand, um, you know, will be uh, changed or, you know, or whether there'll be some other kind of ruling. But the victory, both through that ruling and then there was an appellate ruling that upheld it, even though it, it reduced it. it. You know, it's now in black and white that the White House and the FBI were in violation of the First Amendment. Uh, and four different judges have looked at this and have, have come to the same conclusion. And um, this is a big case. This is like may, maybe the most consequential First Amendment case we've had in a long, long time. And it's it's incredibly interesting to watch. Uh, and for me, as having been part of the Twitter files, when you know we went to that, nobody even believed it was going on. Uh, it's amazing that it's come this far. Yeah, absolutely. It's great. And again, it's uh, racket.news. This is a very interesting piece on it, too. The Supreme Court will rule on censorship. And I know it's complicated, but you talk in here about how the government seems to have overreached in their appeal, saying that they reserve the right to censor anybody for anything, not just for something that the courts have already ruled is not protected speech, like hiring a hitman or inciting someone to riot and burn down somebody else's house or something like that. Yeah. So this is fascinating. Uh, You know, I went, I went down to Louisiana when this was being argued in the appellate court. And first of all, it's interesting because this is a huge case and the plaintiffs uh, had a whole table full of high-powered lawyers who were arguing this thing. The, the federal government, the Biden administration, sent one lonely lawyer to argue this thing, and he seemed not to have done his homework. Like, he immediately started arguing stuff to the judge that was, like, factually incorrect. He, you know, he was saying that the government is going to be prevented from, you know, acting on terrorist threats. And that was actually one of the primary exceptions to the to the injunction. Uh, now, after the appellate court ruled on this, the only thing that was really left in the appellate ruling um, was the government is not allowed to go to these companies and tell them to mess with protected free speech. That was the, the language that they use. And the government, in filing a motion to oppose this ruling, is essentially saying, no, we want the right to even go after protected free speech. Uh, so that was something that had not been asserted before. And like, rather than saying, we don't think that there was actually any damage done to these particular plaintiffs, you haven't proved that, you know, there's a million ways they could have defended this. Instead, they went through the front door and said, we need the right to do this. We, we need the right to go after protected free speech because that's what presidents do. And, and it's a right of ours. And they're going to lose on that. I mean, I think in, unless there's some kind of fix in most judges are going to look at this and say, like, I, I can't endorse that, you know. Um, and so it, it's a remarkable argument especially given the Supreme Court above them, like the the likelihood that that's going to prevail seems very small to me. Yeah. And you know what? 
everybody in America of any political persuasion or even if you have none, like we have to all agree on freedom of speech, First Amendment or not. Let's say that the overlords claim that they suspended the First Amendment. Now there's no First Amendment. Well, so we're still all born screaming. We got the right to speak. Of course we do on our own property or on the public commons, obviously not trespassing on somebody else's property, but, you know, out in the public space, they have no right to intervene in this way at all. We all know that, regardless of whether they can come up with some technicality. This is no different than if they tell you, no, you can't be Catholic, you have to be Protestant, or vice versa. Are you kidding me? That's not how we do business here. We just don't. No, and, and, and you're absolutely right. Not only do they not have the right to do that, the, the Constitution is very clear. This is the first thing in the Constitution. It's the first thing in the Bill of Rights. Um, it, you know, the Declaration of Independence talks about how all, you know, all men are created equal and endowed with certain inalienable rights. When they start to enumerate what those are, the first thing is the freedom of speech, freedom of the press, freedom of religion, freedom to, you know, petition the government for redress of grievances. We we don't get that right from government. We are born with that right. That is something that we have as people. The government is just an entity that is limited in its ability to mess with that, right? Like the, the, that's that's how our law works. They don't have an inherent right to go in and, and you know prevent us from saying X, Y, or Z. As you say, we can. We're born screaming, and and you know the, the our constitution says. That's the natural state of things. You have to show cause for, for how you for, for what allows you to limit that. And they rather than saying or then are then making some kind of pragmatic argument like we need to do X, Y and Z and this is not protected speech because of this or that. They instead are arguing this much larger concept that, no, we need to rethink the whole concept of free speech. And the rights need to redound to us, not to the speaker. And that, if that succeeds, that's that's just revolutionary. I don't think it can, can succeed. Yeah, I don't. I agree with you. I think. Well, we got to cross our fingers and hope when right. it comes down. You never to know. It, yeah. yeah, it does come down to nine overlords and dresses deciding. So we'll see what their whims amount to here. But there we go. Right. That's the system. All right. Listen. Uh, of course, we're over time and out of time but thank you so much uh, for coming back on the show Matt you're great and you do great work thanks Scott I really appreciate it thanks for having me on alright you guys that's Matt Taibbi he is at racket.news check out the Supreme Court will rule on censorship and forget collusion was interference also fake news and that's it for anti-war radio for today I'm Scott Horton go to scotthorton.org to sign up for the podcast feed and check out the archives and stuff I'm on Twitter at Scott Horton Show and I'm here every Thursday from 2.30 to 3 on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA. See you next week.